this is Ann Hill. Welcome back to Dream Talk Radio. I'm here in New Orleans uh, talking with the, the very prolific children's author and uh, teacher, Whitney Stewart. Whitney, welcome. Hi, Ann. How are you? <laughs> I'm, I'm saying welcome, and I'm yes. in your house. Yes. So that's ironic. <laughs> you, welcome to my house. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'm, I'm so excited to talk with you because I'm, you know, we met a few years ago through mutual friends. And um, then I've see, I've been following you and seeing some of your more recent uh, children's books come out. But you have been writing books and biographies for kids for a long time, a and long time. particularly about uh, non-mainstream topics, you know, um, people, right? And and uh, historical. Work. So, do you want to just talk about how you got into uh, writing for children? So, I knew I always wanted to write for kids, and I've known it since high school. In high school, I took a um, an aptitude test from the Institute of Children's Literature, and you know, aptitude for writing for kids, and I passed it, and so I started taking their course. But I had so much homework that I couldn't take the course. <laughs> I couldn't finish the course. But then I went to college, I went to Brown University, and you could do independent majors, and so I did an independent major in um, children's literature and linguistics. Perfect. So, and, and this is important because at Brown, my mentor, Naomi Barron, who's a linguist, um, she, when I was doing my honors thesis, she said, focus on nonfiction for kids. And I was like, no, 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 I want to write fiction, I want to study fiction, and she said, for the purposes of this particular thesis, looking at the language of children's books, I think it's better if you focus on nonfiction. And she had a point, so I did. Yeah. And lo and behold, I became a nonfiction children's <laughs> book writer. I didn't know that I was going to be that in college, but I got so fascinated with nonfiction children's books yes. for children for, for kids that um, that it just made me go into it more deeply. Right. And so I had this idea. At the same time, I was very interested in meditation. Mm -hmm. I started practicing yoga as a 15-year-old. I had a very stressed out childhood. I had alcoholic parents and siblings. So um, so you just found meditation? So I, I, was, I was at a boarding school uh -huh. and um, this is interesting, I think, maybe not germane to this conversation, but it ha it happened through injury. I uh -huh. was a big athlete oh. and was playing three varsity sports, and my knees bothered me, and I went to a surgeon who told me, if you stop competitive sports, you'll be walking when you're 40. If you don't, you'll be in a wheelchair. Okay. And when you tell that to a 15-year-old, yeah. you know, I was very depressed oh, yeah. because it was my identity. It right. was, you know, I thought of myself as a strong, physically active mm -hmm. person. It was also my friends. It was my peer group. That, right. was my, that was my pack. Right. And all that suddenly gone. And so I became very depressed. I stopped eating well. I just mm. felt bad about myself. I saw myself as weak. And it was this mind game that was going yes. on. Right. And I asked, I found a yoga class. So this was 1975, I think. Mm -hmm. And so that was the early granola crunch sure. era of yoga. Mm -hmm. And so it was 
considered pretty freaky back then. Mm -hmm. But I asked my school if they would give me permission to take yoga at night, and to their credit, they said yes. So I would able to come off campus and go take yoga. Mm -hmm. And um, that was the first time I'd ever felt this um, mind-body relaxation that went so deep Mm -hmm. for me. and it's not that it took away my problems, it's not the way that took my, my negative thinking per se, but it was, it helped balance a lot of that. Mm-hmm. And um, I was also stressed because I was hard on myself and right. I wanted to do well and you know I really wanted to go to a good college, so I put stress right. on myself too. Um, but this was something I could explore. Mm-hmm. Well, that interest continued and um, Fast forward to after college, I'm a travel agent at this point because I want to travel the world, so I'm thinking I'll be a travel agent so I can sure. travel right and right. And I planned a trip with my mom to go to Tibet uh, and Nepal. That uh, You didn't start small, you didn't go, let's go to Mexico, Canada. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was a big hiker and rock climber. Oh, okay. So, and I always wanted to go to Mount Everest since I was a kid. My uh, aunt promised that she was going to take me to the base camp of Mount Everest when I was 14. Oh that trip goodness. didn't happen, so we made it happen. So my mom and I went trekking in Tibet and Nepal. But when I reached Tibet, I had one of those moments that there are no words for. I'm standing in front of the Potala in Lhasa, Tibet. The Potala is where the Dalai Lama once lived. Um, and I, something happened. My mm-hmm. brain just clicked. I can't explain it, but I felt like, wait, I know this, or mm-hmm. this is familiar, or something. Right. And so I actually wrote a letter to Heinrich Harrer, the Austrian man who had been the Dalai Lama's tutor, mm. and said that I wanted to learn more about Tibetans and the Dalai Lama. And he said, well don't go back to Tibet, go to Dharamsala, India. Mm-hmm. So I went to Dharamsala, India with the idea of writing about the Dalai Lama mm. and also writing about a Tibetan child living in exile. Mm. Um, so I became very involved with um, Tibetan life and culture and Tibetan Buddhism and I took Buddhist vows and I lived in the home of a Tibetan family. They had a, they rent, They had an extra room and they were very gracious, and we mm. became good friends. And um, and I was able to interview the Dalai Lama a number of times for um, for two different biographies of the Dalai mm. Lama: one for middle grade and one for teenagers. And this is 80s sometime. This was in the 80s. Mm-hmm. In the 80s. The first time I interviewed him was in 87, oh, I believe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. What a story. Well, I, I wanted to backtrack a yeah. little bit, okay. and, and then we'll, we can catch right up to yeah. where we are now. What did you learn in college about the language of nonfiction for kids? Ah. So at that time, in the 80s, nonfiction children's books was very, they were, it was a very limited field. Yes. It was boring. Yeah. There were text-heavy books without illustrations, without... Um, without any joy and spark in those books. Right. And, um, but Jean Fritz was one author 
who was extraordinary and she really mm -hmm. stepped out and she wrote history as if it were a story mm -hmm. not making up facts but just telling it in a narrative voice that was very engaging for kids mm -hmm. and I love Jean Fritz books and so I thought to myself I want to be more like Jean Fritz and she understood sentence structure and narrative voice um, in a way that wasn't talking down to children, yeah. but in language that was simple and clear enough that kids could follow along mm -hmm. in a story. And she didn't drown them with boring facts. Right. Um, she would weave a fact into an interesting sentence. So what I learned about the language was, I wanted to know whether adults changed their language. I, I knew then, motherese was a big topic at that point, about mothers changing language when they spoke to children. Uh. In the 1980s, that was a very big hot topic right. in, in linguistics. And so I wanted to see, okay, so adults change their language when they're speaking to children. Do they also change their language when they're writing children? And, and yes, they do. Um, but I wanted to know specifically how. Yeah. You know, was it just word choice? Is it right. simpler sentences? Um, is it, you know, direct? declarative sentences, you know, can right. we can we use subordinate clauses, you know, I was looking right. at this kind of stuff. Sure. Um, but of course, then when you take all that information and want to become a children's book writer, you're, you're not diagramming sentences anymore. Right. You really have to think about story and, oh, and right. narrative voice. And, um, and, and of course, then eventually, not right away, but eventually writers started, began to start putting in sidebars and pull out quotes right. and interesting back matter and um, using archival material as illustration, sometimes even combined with illustration. I don't have that book right. Um, I, I can pull it out for mm -hmm. you, but I have one book that really, it was one of my earlier ones that I said, mm -hmm. I really want to take photographs of these old letters that I'm using in my materials, hey, which, old which charts. Book was it? What and was this, it about? This was about, uh, I have it in the other room, but it's okay. Um, it's about um, the rescue of the W.F. Marshall, um, a ship that was passing Nantucket, and there oh, was wow. a shipwreck, and um, how the life-saving, the lifesavers of, of yes. Nantucket saved everyone and the Newfoundland dog off the W.F. Marshall, oh, um, and, and that was off the coast of Nantucket. Um, and we lived on Nantucket after Hurricane Katrina. Oh, Somebody wow. um, lent us a house to live in. So I became very, very interested going from one disaster, Hurricane Katrina, yeah. where I was stuck in a, a building during the storm, yes. going to another another area that really understood storms right. very well. And I got right. very immersed in learning about shipwrecks. So. You you know you were uh, reminding me of reading uh, when I was a kid and reading you know, history textbooks, mm -hmm. or, I, I mean, my first um, uh, career goal mm -hmm. was to be on the Newberry Award Committee, because I, <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> I was, I was cool. the kid during the, during summer who tried to go, you know, year by year, reading all of the Newberry oh, Awards. Wow. <laughs> I just thought that wow. Cool. And, but I'm, rem I'm just remembering those history textbooks, and they were dry as a bone. Oh. They're, and they looked boring too. They looked boring, and all the interesting stuff was in those sidebars mm -hmm. that you're talking about, because mm -hmm. that's where they actually allowed there to be some story. Mm -hmm. The rest mm -hmm. of it was just expository, oh, and right. honestly, somebody's sitting around diagramming sentences. Yes, you know, and right. how, and and 
And it wasn't just about we have to write for this comprehension level. Mm -hmm. It was, I'm, I'm feeling it now, a lack of understanding about the inner life of a, of a child, mm -hmm. of a kid. Right. You know, there's right. this lack of, uh, of comprehension of like how deep that goes. Right. You know. Right. And that has really changed now, I'm sure you know. Yes. There are all sorts of writers now who really get, you know, entertaining kids as well as, you know, teaching history or science or... It's wonderful. Yeah, it's so, it's such a different, different yeah. world for nonfiction writers yes. now. Right. But back then, and, and we just didn't, we also publishers just weren't going to publish anything all that interesting or they didn't, they right. didn't, maybe it didn't occur. I don't know. I would love to have a conversation right now with some of those editors to right. and then some of the editors who began to break through yes you know, like what what was it why did they decide right. to do that you know so let's look at some of, and and for all of you uh, listening I'm talking with Whitney Stewart who is the author most recently of what do you celebrate and it's a book for younger children about holidays and festivals around the world um, but backing up into your earlier stuff, oh, and also what's on your plate, exploring the world of food, which they're just, I, we'll get to those. I love the illustrations. I love the whole idea. Um, but here we have your stuff for sort of older. Yeah, now older these, these are, um, yes, this, this was a series with Learner Publications, mm -hmm. and it was started in 19, I think 1990. We'd have to check the copyright. Mm -hmm. But it went for about a decade, and we created this series called the Newsmaker Series. And so it started with the um, 14th Dalai Lama. Mm -hmm. Then um, uh, I became, I was lucky enough to have a friend who knew Sir Edmund Hillary, the first man to climb Mount Everest. So we went on a trek with him. I believe it was his actual last trek in wow. the Himalayas. After that, he was helicoptered up there, but I think oh it was the goodness. last time that he trekked up there. And um, while we were trekking um, and in, in the Solo Kumbu Everest region of, of Nepal, I was able to interview him. Um, wow. And I, he was my hero as a kid because I was, as I said, a big rock climber and mountain climber. So, oh my gosh, you know, Mr. <laughs> Edmund Hillary. You know. And you're up there on the and mountain. And being there with him, that was uh, all thanks to my friend Ann Kaiser, a photographer, oh, Ann Kaiser, who knew, who knew Sir Edmund Hillary. Right. And then I went, when I lived in Germany after mm -hmm. writing this book, or actually while I was writing this book, my husband is German, mm -hmm. and my husband and son and I lived in Germany. I met an American couple who they were. He was a historian, and they knew Aung San Suu Kyi. Right. And they said, "Well, why don't you write about Aung San Suu Kyi?" And I didn't know very much about her at mm -hmm. the time. This is the early early nineties. So this is before she's under house arrest. She she was under house arrest yeah. at that time. Okay. And so I thought, well, how am I going to interview her? Right. Um, and I. They had, they could connect me to her husband, so I thought, well, I could interview her husband, maybe her sons if they allow me to, people who knew her, yeah. and so I pitched this proposal to my publisher, and right. they turned it down. Wow. And about a few months, I don't know, I don't wish I'd remember, but a few months later, I believe, she was released from house arrest, and they contacted me and said, well, how soon can you get to Nepal? I mean, oh. to get to Burma. To Burma. Um, and. 
So I did. Wow. And that was nerve-wracking trip. I went in 1995, and um, my phone was tapped. I was followed. People wanted to know who I was, but I was able to interview her. And she told me the only reason she said yes to the interview was that I was writing for children. If I had been writing an adult biographer, biography she said she would have said no because she wanted to save the material for herself I Uh believe that was her reason Um, so we sat down for an interview and then she gave a press conference so I went to the press conference as well in Mm -hmm. 1995 so that was extraordinary I loved Burma Mm -hmm. Um, I thought it was the most beautiful country and the people that I met couldn't have been more generous Mm -hmm. and loving I was, of course, always worried that my presence, my meeting them, might put them in danger. Sure. So that was, that was tension yeah, the right. whole trip. So. Uh, and what, uh, what an about face. What an about face. And yeah. I don't even know what to say about that now. Yeah. Um, it's very hard for me to follow because I'm not there. I haven't interviewed her. I would love to ask questions directly of her right now. Yeah. Um, and. That book is out of print, mm-hmm. and people I get contacted often by news mm. companies to do an interview, and I tell them, you know, I haven't interviewed her in a long time, yes. and so it's not my place to speak. But so all we're getting is what comes through on right. news media. And what would you ask her if you were able to sit down? And well, I would her. ask her. That's a very good question. Um, I would ask her what her views on or on the Rohingya mm-hmm. massacres that we're hearing about that seem I want to know her view on it I want to know why she hasn't stepped in to stop them or mm-hmm. if she has how has she mm-hmm. um, and has the military stopped what she wants you know she probably wouldn't even answer my questions I would yeah. imagine I think there would be too much politic yeah. um, I would ask her to respond to what did she say to the way those of us who were really behind her when she was up for a Nobel Peace Prize right. um, were questioning her? What did she say about mm-hmm. that? You know, I understand it's a very complex government system, you know, working with the military, but I don't understand. Um, many people have accused her of racism, herself, not just her government, of mm-hmm. racism. I would like to have. I would like her to answer to that yes. accusation. Right. Um, I'd have to really think through the rest of my questions, but that's where I would start. Uh, that would be a good place. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. that would be a good place to start. I mean, it, it strikes me now that, that because she, you know, having told you that she agreed to your interview because you were writing for children, mm. and she wanted to save her own. Mm biographical stuff for her own writing now where where does that put her yeah where does that put her and is she writing something right you know who knows and was she writing something when she was under house arrest that hasn't come out yet Um, it's just you know how do you how do you think about individuals in the midst of this human tragedy just just utter genocidal right tragic um, and I also don't pretend to understand what it's like to be in the Rohingya population, well, sure. or what it's like to be Aung San Suu Kyi. Yeah. So I would have to ask, or what it's like to be any other Burmese right now. You know, I interviewed yes. many, many, many Burmese people in 1995 or 1994, 
um, this is a different story, it's a different yeah. time, yeah. it's a different That's situation. True. So I would have to interview them again. And and you've got, so Deng Xiaoping, mm-hmm. we've got Mount Zedong. Now, how did you... So that's, how did I get from Dalai Lama to Mao Zedong and Deng Xiaoping? Mm-hmm. So I, I even had some Tibetan friends when they heard I was writing about Mao Zedong. In fact, one of my Tibetan Buddhist monk teachers mm-hmm. um, really had a hard time with my writing about uh, um, Mao Zedong, of mm-hmm. course. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, Buddhist teachings have taught me to to really look at all sides, to think of people as people, right. to um, not presume to understand and um, another person's experience. And so I, I became very curious about understanding. I was so involved was to Tibetans mm-hmm. and I was you know demonstrating for Tibetans and writing I edited right. a newsletter uh, right. for Tibetan um, life and culture um, and politics at that time and I guess I just really fully wanted to understand what the Chinese perspective was mm-hmm. I also was accused after that Dalai Lama book came out I was accused by a Chinese um, journalist in New Orleans of teaching children to hate Chinese, which really upset me. Wow. Because that is not, I never would teach children to hate well, anyone. Yes. Right. Um, and that that was her perspective on right. my writing was um, a challenge and emotionally hurtful, but also intellectually a challenge. Yes. Like, okay, so what am I not understanding about right. myself or my perspective? Right. And so, um, this all went into deciding to write about um, Mao Zedong, mm-hmm. just looking at the whole, chi- um, well, not just the China and Tibet conflict, but it was much more, just trying right. to understand the Chinese Revolution. Right. And so um, so that was a fascinating book to, to research and to write. And then from there, I thought, well, it just kind of led into, of course, I read a lot about Deng Xiaoping right. while I was reading about Mao Zedong, so right. it led into that next right. book. So. You know the the other thing I uh, that's just been my my experience as a uh, you know growing up and reading and and studying history I was I loved history class but it seems to me that it's it was always taught especially in middle school from middle school you know from maybe mm-hmm. fifth fourth fifth grade on mm-hmm. up as this uh, things were bad and now they're getting better mm, that right. was sort of the right. the progress. Right. Right. Uh, almost kind of a manifest destiny echo. Yeah. Yep. And mm-hmm. how? It's <laughs> a very interesting. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Um, and then we look at, you know, we look at Burma, and right. when we were, I was writing this, she was just out of house arrest, and then she was a hero, yes. a heroine, and Nobel Peace Prize. And then now, where are we? Right. And then you look at the Tibetan conflict, of course, um, there's no less respect. There's more respect, of course, sure. for His Holiness the Dalai Lama. But for Tibetans, that conflict hasn't been resolved. Right. That's right. And it, it strikes me that there's a real tension there, just in terms of writing, mm-hmm. and you're taking a little bit of a step back from the actual subject matter. Mm. There's a tension because you want kids to 
have hope. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You can't oh, yeah. just like, mm. you know, cudgel them with right. all of the terrible things. Right. But and so how do you how do you split that difference? I'm having a I'm having a hard time with that. Right. That very question. And I'm going to leap to another yes, subject. Yes, please. So, um, because we, for kids, we often write about heroic actions, yes. and as you just said, things were bad and now they're getting better. So again, just give them their hope. I'm struggling with um, another topic, and that is um, about my husband's German uncle, mm-hmm. who was forced to fight for Hitler's mm. government, Hitler's army. Mm-hmm. And um, when he was 19 years old, he was forced to enlist. And As were many. As were men. many. Yeah. And when you're writing about this, of course, I grew up, I grew up thinking German, with regard to World War II, Germans bad, Americans good, right. period. I read Anne Frank, I had a lot of Jewish friends, um, those were the the Holocaust stories were foremost in my mind when I thought of World War II. Um, I watched Hogan's Heroes, so on an entertainment value, of course, the Germans were the <laughs> Dummkopf, you know, they were dumb right. and I idiots. See nothing, I yeah, don't. exactly. So I had this, and then Sound of Music, of course, and then you think of Sound of Music and Betrayal, and um, so that was my perspective, my very very American perspective. Yes. I also had two uncles who fought in, who. But one who actually fought and was a pilot and was shot down by the Germans oh. over Yugoslavia. And he survived, but he was shot down in the terror that his family, my grandparents, mm. went, you know, went through because they hadn't heard from him for a long time. And I heard those stories. And my, then I find out when I meet my husband. So I had this dim view of Germans that just hung right. over me until sure. I met my husband and his lovely German family. And all of a sudden it's a different perspective. The family was, his grandmother was part Jewish. They had to hide that fact. She was baptized Christian, um, but they had to hide all of the old family documents to make sure that, you know, Hitler's government didn't find out that there was a Jewish family member. And the, my husband's grandfather was an artist and he, was offered a job as a university professor. He'd been a university professor at one institution which the Hitler's government shut down, mm. as they shut down many art institutes. He was offered a professorship at another institution, and um, but with the with the um, proviso that he joined the Nazi Party, and he refused to join the Nazi Party, so he lost that job. He was also then slapped with what's called a Berufsverbot, which means he it was a forbidden to, mm. I don't know how to translate it in English, but you're forbidden to do your actual work, right? right. Beruf yeah. is work, yes. and Verbot, right. verboten. Mm-hmm. So, right. um, um, a job. I don't know. Your your profession. Your profession. Yes. yes. Uh, I mean, Arbeit would be work in general. Work, but Beruf is your profession, mm-hmm. right? So he couldn't, and he was an artist. He was a graphic designer and a painter. All of this art in this house is by oh, no kidding. by him. Wow. And um, and he had four children. So this is What's the beginning of the war. You've got four children, and he's lost his job. Mm-hmm. So they let him 
I don't know how this worked exactly because I can't find documentation on it, but ultimately they let him take a job teaching high school drawing. Mm. But they punished him by giving him only a beginner's teacher salary, you know, on which to support four children and a wife, you know. So he moves to Cologne, Germany. The sons are later than um, um, conscripted. Mm. They knew what happened to the older son. He died in Italy. The younger son, they never knew what happened to him. And I, the only picture I ever had was this picture. I'm looking at the cover oh, of wow. um, our yes. book on this collaborative book called Feldpost. And um, this was the only picture I had of him wearing um, wearing a um, Wehrmacht uniform, which, of uh -huh. course, the first time I saw this picture, I hated it. Yes. I, I was compassionate to my mother-in-law, who'd lost her brother, right. and to his soft, sensitive look, his face. Look at his expression. But, but I hated the uniform. But he I is not it. having a good time. Oh, he was not having, this isn't even the worst picture, but he's okay. not having a good time. Yeah. Um, you can see it documented through the mm. pictures of this time. But nobody knew anything about him. I only knew this picture. Wow. He went missing on the Russian front, and that was it. And so I was sad and said, let's, re let's name our son after him. Mm -hmm. Let's keep his name and his memory in the family, but I really knew nothing about him, but I was obsessed with mm. that. Fast forward to Hurricane Katrina. Right. My mother-in-law's house flooded. In the attic of her house, we find some boxes. We don't have time to look at them. We put it in a storage unit, yeah. which later floods. Oy. Long and short of it is, they some of these boxes ended up in our back shed. One day I'm between books and go out to clean up the shed and I find a box that in German says Reiner's War Letters. Oh my goodness. And I literally scream in my back shed and run the box inside my house and put out all the materials on the floor and I'm finding hundreds of letters <gasps> that he wrote to his family during World War II, hundreds of them. And I found his birth certificate, his wound badge, which Fortunately, his wound badge gives his um, unit in the military, so I've got some more so information. You know. And mm -hmm. I've anyway more and more documents, and I that launches me on a four-year research, um, you know, rabbit hole. Right. <laughs> uh, I went back and forth to Germany and to Poland three times, um, looking for what happened to him. And I also found through another children's book writer friend of mine. Juanita Havel, I put a message out on Facebook, does anybody know a German translator? Professional uh -huh. translators around here are going to cost you $60 a page. Mm -hmm. And I had, I also found his brother's letter, so I had over 300 letters. Oh my goodness. So Dennis Havel came into my life. Um, sadly, Dennis, Dennis died last fall, but Dennis and I became wonderful friends. We would have two to three hour long phone conversations. Oh my goodness. Den Dennis did not use a, um, uh, a computer, and he's, but he was willing to translate these letters for us. And I you know, asked him, and what would you charge us to do this? And he said, to help a family find a lost son or brother, nothing. Oh my goodness. So out of the kindness of his heart, his intellectual um, fortitude, and curiosity, he translated over 300 letters for us. And they were, most of them were in old German script, Sutherland script, and um, which we couldn't read. 
Uh-huh. Um, only yeah. my sister-in-law and my mother-in-law could read it, mm-hmm. but my mother-in-law was frail and elderly, and she couldn't translate these mm-hmm. for me. My sister-in-law is a busy uh, professor, so sure. she doesn't live here. She couldn't do them. So Dennis and I became great friends. But miracle upon miracles, Dennis was also a World War II expert. Oh, my goodness. Particularly on military movements and weaponry, and he understood the Wehrmacht deeply. You know, I was like, wait, wow. what strings did this this young man's name was Rainer? What strings did Rainer pull upstairs? That right. pulled, you know. Isn't that remarkable? I felt like a puppet on a string sure. that I was being led to. This, this. was just a story right. waiting for you to open that box. So now we get to the question that you asked about yes. subject matters for kids. Yes. And there is a segue here. And uh-huh. the segue is I wanted to write this. For children, for teens, mm-hmm. like what w- I would go into schools and give a PowerPoint. Yeah. What would it be like for you to be forced to fight for a government that you hated, that you didn't believe in, that were hurting people, mm-hmm. Jewish people yes. and others, of course. Sure. But this family was Jew- part yes. Jewish, right. um, and he had to fight for them. Yeah. And you know, asking the question, you know, why didn't you run away? That's an obvious question. Sure. Why didn't you run away? How could you become the enemy? Mm-hmm. And so I really had to think, okay, so now I want to explore what is an enemy? Mm-hmm. You know, when I first saw this picture of him, he represented the enemy to right. me, but I knew nothing about him. Right. Now, how do I convey all of this yes. to kids, but with the question that you asked, but still finding hope in it? Right. Not just piling on the horror of World War II and his horror, I mean, his letters. So this, this, this adult book is um, a collection of his letters mm-hmm. translated, mm. um, and then a bit about my story of trying to find for him. Sure. Um, but how, I really wanted to tell that story for young teens. Right. Um, what if they had a government that they couldn't yeah. stand behind who were forcing them to do things that they didn't want to do, or they didn't believe in? Um, but it was so not hopeful. and. I was getting turned down by publishers from early versions, and I'm still struggling with that. Okay, how do I tell this in a way that grabs the reader, the the young reader, and doesn't drown the young reader in horror, but still opens up that conversation, which I think we're having right now. We are having it, and it makes me think of the... um, you know the books and the memoirs and the um, the work around child soldiers in mm-hmm. uh, you mm-hmm. know mm-hmm. right right in many countries many, many countries, countries right yeah right exactly and what happens to them so what happens, what happens to them personally and emotionally physically right. and that's even more brutal than than your husband's relative because that's you know children literally literally children taken right and, and forced into it is uh, and yet many form. of the threads of the the themes the themes are similar are, are similar I mean he was 19 he wasn't 12 that's right um, and you're forced to somehow desensitize yourself enough to right but he he still like we have one letter that says when he was he was wounded three times oh. sent to the Russian front four times wounded three Jesus. times never came back the fourth time. We have a le- one of the letters from his military. It was a standard letter signed by some yeah. officer, basically saying, "You're on medical leave. 
but you know when that medical leave is up if you don't report back you know basically threatening him if you don't report back you know you're going to be in trouble and we know from right. doing a lot of, I know from doing a lot of research too right. that many of these people who deserted were shot if they were caught right. or imprisoned so you're it's maybe you're not out in a jungle you're going to be shot right. but you still were going to you're going to be shot by your own government yeah if you don't shoot it's like a choose your own adventure novel where all the choices are bad are bad right 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 because there's only a very thin chance that you desert and you can get out of there right. with your life intact right. also imagine and you know this happens all the time in this world is just being a family, living your life, yes. you know, artist father, right. the kids are going to school, right. you're trying to make a living. Yes. My mother-in-law was became a librarian, and suddenly you're thrown into this chaos by a government that you don't believe in or stand for and you hate, and you have, what control do you have other than your right. vote? And at that time, a vote wouldn't have helped the Germans. That's right. So, of course, we, d we know that many went along with it. We know that. Right. But there were many that didn't. That's right. There were many that didn't. So this this book, uh, Feldpost, is for adults. This is for adults. So yeah. this is, so Dennis wrote this adult book. Oh, okay. He translated the letters. Yeah. And um, then Dennis, because he was a military expert, right. he then wrote, this was what was happening during the war at this uh -huh. time. This was the troop movements and whatnot. Um, and Dennis had this was Dennis's first book, so then I went in and, and helped Dennis by editing it, right. and we worked together. But Dennis had all of the expertise mm -hmm. that I didn't mm -hmm. have um, to put this together for adults. Right. Um, and this is for adults, but in the meantime, yeah. I still want to tell this story to for teens, story. but I haven't figured out the best way how. I will be so interested to hear how you how you thread that needle. I was working with an illustrator. We were going to tell it in an illustrated version, oh, uh -huh. but an illustrated teen version. Not not like a graphic novel per se. Right. It was more of a hybrid format. Right. Um, but I was first using Heiner's own words to do it, and they are very they're erudite, uh -huh. and they're in a language that just doesn't lend right. itself to right. a teen book in America sure. at this time. Right. So I'm going to have to, you know, use. So my own voice for it, or right. you know, I don't know yet. But. What a story! Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, a story about a story. A story about a story. So you went down a four-year rabbit hole. Mm -hmm. I even dug in. Um, I found a wonderful um, Polish guide who's a photographer, um, and he took me all around Poland twice. Once I wanted to go in January because Heine disappeared in January 1945. It was a big battle where he when he was in ground zero um, in Poland and I wanted to go there. And so we went in winter. Um, but then I wanted to go back again in the summertime and I found a metal detector expert who was um, knew about digging up uh, all sorts of artifacts in Poland and knew where all the battlefields were mm. and so um, I went with him uh, and my Polish guy Pavel and we went back and we were in this in the um, in the fields where Reiner was encamped mm -hmm. for months waiting for this big battle to start wow. in Russia and we dug 
there and found all sorts of German weaponry and unexploded mines. Oh, Jesus. And, um, and German wine bottles and bullets, machine guns, all the, and the kinds of bullets and machine, the kinds of weaponry. Rainer was a um, machine gunner at one point. And we found the kinds of machine guns that he used. Mm. Obviously, I don't know if he used that one, but right. the same kind. Mm. Um, and we also found a German, a body of a German soldier. Mm. So when that happens, um, they call in um, the Germans and the Polish. They have committees that come in and, mm -hmm. and, and exhume, the, exhume the bodies and try to um, trying to find out mm -hmm. who it was. Um, Goodness. In our case, I don't know if I should give away the story, but uh, mm. in our case, I found out mostly what happened to him. Wow. Mostly what happened to him. There's a big gap, which I'd still right. love to solve. But, sure. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So, um, it's not a happy story. So how do you how it's do you tell that? It's not a happy story. For teens, where's right. the hope? Right. Right. Except you know, for the question of what's an enemy. I mean, you know, there's well, yes, and thinking about that, which is actually maybe a a great segue into your books about mindfulness mm -hmm. for kids, mm -hmm. right? Because how else do you really sit with that question of what's mm -hmm. an enemy, who's the other? Mm -hmm. And I think that because I teach kid teach kids mindfulness, yes, and. Um, and conflict resolution and conflict could be in your own mind, not sure. just between other people. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> right. Show of hands. Yeah. <laughs> right. Um, I think that is why this topic, this subject right. of what is an enemy and, and all of this is so interesting to me because I'm, you know, I have to step away in my own life of thinking about. I grow up thinking good, bad, good, bad, yes. good, bad. You're either good or you're bad, right or wrong. Yep. And um, that's such binary thinking, you know, it's just it's such binary thinking. I mean, I think <sighs> some of the best vehicles that have explored that stuff are, are I mean, I'm thinking of Breaking Bad or different, mm -hmm. different, mm -hmm. you know, television series, right? You know, right. Um, the Shy, I mean, all this mm -hmm. amazing storytelling right. that shifts your perspective right. on what's good, what's bad. Uh, and and it's such a, 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 a and we're living in this we're all on a hair trigger alert I feel like yes emotionally yes about something good something bad right it's it, this how is how outraged am I gonna get today oh my gosh mm -hmm. it's it's mm -hmm. um yeah and, and that makes understanding each other so much harder right so much harder because we're just ready to jump down somebody's throat right um. And I don't, while I don't usually jump down people's throats, in my mind, when something upsets me, my mind might go, ah! you know, yeah. I'm hearing the right. screaming in my head. Right. And then, okay, how am I going to work with that voice right. in my head and take it apart right. and understand how much of this is my own narrow thinking right. um, and, and try to understand each other. So in... In my books on mindfulness and in my class um, mindfulness, I really try to focus on mindful listening mm -hmm. and asking open-ended questions mm -hmm. of each other, of yourself, 
um, and also be, being able to admit, admit what you're thinking, what you're feeling, mm-hmm. but again, in an open-ended way to say, is that definitely right? Is that definitely true? Do I always believe what I'm thinking? Yeah. Do I have to believe what I'm thinking? Is it helpful for me to believe what I'm thinking? Right. Um, and then you're going to hope if you could create a situation where other people are going through that process as well. Mm-hmm. Can we two people come together or five people come together and have a conversation where we're open and we're really explaining mm-hmm. what it is, how we came to our thoughts and our emotions? Right. And how we can learn to live with each other with these thoughts and emotions and our pathways, our belief systems, right. and find some place of respect. How? What's your favorite age group to, to work with? To work with nine to twelve. Nine to twelve. Mm-hmm. And why? Why is that? Um, I find that I, I've worked with teens and mm. I've worked with younger. Nine to twelve. Sometimes, sometimes there's an eight-year-old that's mm-hmm. you know quite mature and will come to the class. But nine to twelve, we have a better under, a better understanding of who we are, and and yet we're still very open. We're very open to listening to things. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a, a intellectual um, maturity that sometimes an emotional maturity that sometimes needed to understand the concepts of mindfulness. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet we're not so mm, so busy with um, the issues that come very prevalent in teenagers lives right um, where their academics get a little bit more ramped up their social life is mm-hmm. more ramped up their hormones are changing mm-hmm. the pressures on them are ramped up they're expected to be prepared for the next step. Right. So there's many more serious, and I, and I and I hope to talk to kids before they get to that stage. And that would allow them to hopefully have a little bit more of a skill set. Right. To deal with all of those pressures. A skill set that I wish I had had. Oh my God. Me too. Now I've just, having said that, I so I've just this season have come out with baby books. Yeah. To teach really 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 simple mindful breathing Mm -hmm. concept of loving kindness Mm -hmm. um, relaxation techniques and I have a book for teens coming out um, in August so it's a mindfulness book for teens so it's not to say that I don't like working with those age I'm just saying right now I'm teaching Mm -hmm. um, I'm teaching a class of nine to twelve year olds Um, that was always my favorite age to teach which is why you know oh yeah I just when I, when I was a teacher, yeah, just yeah, they're just open. They're open, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? And it, of course, as I said, it's not to say that teens can't be open no, and toddlers can't be not open, not but there's an immaturity there that's and still an openness, um, yeah. and without usually without the heavy pressure of high school, right? Right. So. And they're up for some more abstract thinking, yeah, than the yeah. younger than kids. the younger ones. Yeah. Also, and so much of teaching mindfulness. And by the way, I want to make it very clear that I teach mindfulness in a non-denominational okay. way, yeah, without any concepts of any right. any religion, um, any spirituality. Really, just looking at understanding the mind, understanding mm-hmm. emotions. And using um, the you know the physical techniques of mindful walking or mindful listening or 
mindful eating, um, mindful breathing. Um, so th- those are those are techniques that you can use mm-hmm. within a spiritual practice or without outside of a spiritual right. practice. So how would you talk to a, a class of fifth graders about mindful eating? I mean, mm. you know, they're in the cafeteria. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Well, I think number one is um, sl- actually doing a mindful eating exercise, a very simple exercise of just taking one bite. You know, the traditional way of doing that is with a raisin, but it doesn't have to be a raisin. But taking one bite, putting away all distractions, so you're not talking, you're not um, listening to music, you're not whatever else you might be doing. You know, if some fifth graders might have cell phones, but all of those things are away. Mm -hmm. And um, just focusing on the physical activity of tasting that bite, mm-hmm. really noticing a wear on your tongue you're tasting it, and a wear in your mouth you're experiencing texture. Um, and of course, for some kids they think it's funny and fun, and other kids think it's ultimately boring. Right. Um, it's so slow, I just want to eat my food, right? Um, and that's all good, that's all fine. So what you're exploring then is your reaction to that. Yes. Is your mind say, right. oh, this is so boring? You know, why does your mind say it's so boring? Right. You know? Do you actually hate the taste of food and that's why you don't want to do this? Or does it just does it change in your mouth so it gets all slimy and gooey and that's unpleasant for you? You know, what is it that's both physically and emotionally changing in your mind. Right. You know? So um, sometimes they have fun with that. Um, mindful eating only goes so far with fifth graders. Sure. I think. Yeah. Um, they like, usually in my class, they, they'll do some meditation for a little while and mm-hmm. mindful breathing, but not very long. Mm-hmm. They really don't like it after a while. I, we, we sometimes challenge ourselves in my class and um, we start with three minutes. Uh-huh. So that's a long time when you're first starting. <laughs> yeah. And then one time we pushed it to 11 minutes, and they're like, that was so hard. <laughs> yeah, well, it is so hard doing nothing but focusing on your breathing for 11 right. minutes. Right. For a fifth grader, it can be challenging. Not all fifth graders, of course. Mm-hmm. Not all fifth graders. So there are some kids that just naturally can sit still and focus on their breathing, right. and they love it. Um, the rest of us, <laughs> and I'm putting myself in that camp and when I was a fifth grader, you know. Mm-hmm. No, it's boring. Um, <laughs> but in our class, we um, also do mindful walking. I'll do something, um, you know, get up and shake and, you know, right. shake your body and then be still and notice the difference between what's happening in your body when you're shaking, what's right. happening in your body when you're being still. Right. So, right. very physical. Such a great thing. And so, so let's just go through some of the other books that we haven't covered. Um, you have this beautiful book, uh, The Story of Siddhartha, mm-hmm. uh, which um, is a, a picture book. Yeah. And Illustrated uh, by my wonderful friend and talented author-illustrator Sally Rippon, who's Australian. Mm-hmm. She's a great friend. And I remember when Sally was first doing the sketches of This is the Life of the Buddha, and first doing the sketches of the baby when Buddha was mm. a baby, Siddhartha was a baby, and she said, you know, how how do I come up with a face for him? Right. And she had just had a baby. And I just said, 
Look at your little boy. That's all I can tell you is look at your little boy. She captured it really. Just Just in terms of just what does that move in you? Yes. And she did this very extraordinary illustration that opens like a Tibetan text. Yes. So it doesn't open, you don't turn the pages. Side to side. It's it's from top to bottom. Top to bottom, yes. So she she did that. Um, Which just gives a whole different perspective. Of course, we we know that... um, Siddhartha was born in what is now Nepal. Uh, mm-hmm. So, um, anyway, right. but she did it that way just to give it an extraordinary look. Um, it is extraordinary. I've never seen another children's book like this. Right, it's beautiful. Yeah. It's yeah. just so um, stylized. Yes. Yeah. Yes. It's just gorgeous. There's a lot of gold. A lot mm-hmm. of, yeah. yeah, it's beautiful. Um, I mean, the paintings alone. So that was one, and then um, really flipping away from World War II and away from, of course, world cultures, world cultures um, interest me. I love to travel. I've always loved to travel. So that's why many of my books are set in other countries. And what do you celebrate? I just wanted to know what do other kids around the world celebrate? What do they eat? places around the world. I've lived in a lot of different countries, so that gave me some background, of course, but I had to do a lot more research and talking to friends and and talking to colleagues and what do you eat, what do you celebrate, and where you live. And And what do you celebrate? And it goes, there's China, Bhutan, Brazil, I mean, it goes all through it and talks Mm -hmm. about different ceremonies and festivals and, and then each one there's a there's an activity or um, a craft or a game or a recipe from that country that kids uh, as young as five can can do the, it's just wonderful and and what I really love about this book too is like this is enough information for like it's a, it's a two-page spread you have this beautiful illustration on one side and then you have different different things on the other page and it's really like for any family who would want for any um like i'm always trying to i was always buying stuff like this for my kids <laughs> now i'm buying books like this for my grandkids because oh, yeah. Yeah. you know you yeah. want them to just yeah. get out of get out of their box get out of their box and I, just like you i always wanted my son to be out of my box so i was always yes. looking for i have a whole section in my home home library of books that are from this section's from Burma, this section's from Tibet, this mm-hmm. section's from Africa, this section's from Japan, mm-hmm. this section, you know, goes on like that. Um, yep. All because I, you know, I just wanted my son not to just know the kids in his neighborhood. Exactly. I, I used to do, uh, I used to buy the, the, when the first books came out for kids about creation myths from around the oh, world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, yes. I bet we have some of the same books yes. <laughs> on our shelves. I bet we do. Um, and then this is a this is a book um, that again came kind of like Felpos. My stepfather's great great grandfather I knew had some connection to Abraham Lincoln, mm. and I didn't know how. And Abraham Lincoln, when I was growing up, my mom's birthday was on um, February twelfth, so I had this thing about Abraham Lincoln right. when I was a kid, right? Um, and sort of felt like, oh, she has the same birthday. So does my nephew, by the way. So yeah. we must be some connection. Yeah. Well, lo and behold, my stepfather's great-great-grandfather was a portrait painter of Abraham Lincoln, Are you Francis kidding? Bicknell Carpenter from Homer, New York. And but I but I only knew that there was some connection. Yeah. And then when his my stepfather's mother died, same story, 
he inherited a box of materials and letters and whatnot, and he dumped them on my bed one night when I was visiting them in Vermont and said, go through this and see what you think. In that box was a business card of Charles Dickens. Oh, gosh. A letter from Arthur Conan Doyle. No. And a letter from, um, let me think, of so many different people, all at Lincoln's, some of them I didn't even know who they were. I had to look them up. But Lincoln's cabinet members were in there. Wow. And um, other politicians and just leaders of the time. And I thought, wait, who was this man? I heard that he was just a farm boy from Homer, New York. How does he all know all these people? So that started a whole other research um, uh, feast. Right. Um, and trying so to this... find it. And so through those letters, um, I tell the story of Francis Bicknell Carpenter coming to the White House, spending six months in Washington, D.C., painting Abraham Lincoln. Uh, his famous painting was Lincoln. Uh, reading the Emancipation Proclamation to his oh, cabinet yeah. members that oh, hangs in the Capitol building. And this book and it's is still called, there. I just went to see it this, this, last summer. This book is called... This book is called Mr. Lincoln's Mr. Gift, Lincoln. A Civil War Story. Mr. Lincoln's Gift, A Civil War Story. Get it now. It's amazing. <laughs> So, and this is what I was, another thing I was trying to show you. So these were the original sketches wow. that Francis Bicknell Carpenter did of the cabinet members. Oh and they were the studies for the for painting. The, um, of the whole. Of, so that he did individual portraits individual of portraits. these men before he did this whole, whole giant, because right. it's 14 feet wide by nine feet tall, I believe. Oh my gosh. Yeah. They so. better sell this at the, at the. Well, so this, um, this, so I did this, collaborated with um, Lane Dunham, and she's an illustrator, but she's also the um, creative director of Hildeen, which is Robert mm. Todd Lincoln's home in Manchester, Vermont, where my parents live. <laughs> and so my, they li my parents lived across the street. So my stepfather ended up donating the cabinet members, Lincoln's cabinet members' letters to this historic mm. home, Lincoln family home. So wow, and then they published this book. So this is amazing. I mean, what a cool the stories about the stories. Yeah. <laughs> the stories about the stories are have been what's given me joy in life. Uh, this is fantastic. So this was this was Friends of Hildeen was the publisher, right. and it was in two thousand eight. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's beautiful. I love the illustrations, yeah. and they go so well with just the the actual you know, the, the studies. And there's a story within the story. The, the story within the study was another painter went to Francis Bicknell Carpenter and said, my son has been wrongly imprisoned. He was living in the South, forced to fight for the South, but he was a Northerner. And he gave himself up and at the border, you know, mm -hmm. at the, to, he gave himself up to the North mm -hmm. and they, um, imprisoned him and he kept telling them I'm a northerner I, mean, I was forced to fight for the south right. and so that gentleman's young man's father went to the painter Francis Bicknell Carpenter and said could you speak to Lincoln about my son wow. and many people used to go and petition to Lincoln right. for their whatever their case was and so finally, Francis Bicknell Carpenter, while he was painting this, finally found Lincoln on a back staircase one time and asked him, 
can I have some of your time? Right. And Lincoln granted him some time. Francis Carpenter told the story of his friend's son, and ultimately, I don't know if I want to give it away, but <laughs> that has hope in it, that book. <laughs> we'll put it that way. So. Wow. This is such, I, I knew of some of your books, but I had no idea until I actually literally walked into your door that there, there was so much, I mean, you've been at this for a really long time and produced some amazing work for kids. Um, I guess uh, wrapping up, uh, like what's, where's your curiosity taking you now? What's your... I am just finished writing 11 books in two and a half years. Oh my goodness. So, um, I, and I just <laughs> finished the first draft of a book on genetics with my husband. My husband is a clinical geneticist. Wow. And so we're writing a book um, for teens on genetics, on 21st century genomics, really. Right. Um, which includes epigenetics, includes um, CRISPR-Cas9, mm -hmm. you know, all of the main, the big hot topics of genetics right now. Um, and I was not a science person uh -huh. growing up. I was a book brain, right. <laughs> I was literature. And so that was a real brain squeeze for me. Right. Um, but it's, you know, I've been listening to my husband for 32 years talk about <laughs> genetics. And so I guess I picked up a little bit. But, um, you might, you might pick up a little, a little bit. But we collaborated, which also was a different challenge that we'd never done that before. And he's a super, super, super busy geneticist. So having him find some time uh, to, to help write a book was a challenge. Um, but so we just just last week finished our first draft That's and sent fantastic. it off. So this week has been a brain a brain oh um, relaxation week. <laughs> so so maybe you're not curious about anything about except what it's like to just rest. So um, <laughs> I want to get back to some other a novel that I was writing set in New Orleans. There'll probably be another book um, after What's on Your Plate and What Do You Celebrate uh -huh. in that vein. Uh -huh. um, I'd like to go back to maybe telling the story of the young German soldier. Mm. I've also yeah. written it as a screenplay, but that needs a lot of work, yeah. so maybe get back to that screenplay. Wow. But this week, I'm just relaxing. <laughs> Wonderful. So. Well, thank you so much for for um, sharing for your interest. an hour of your relaxing. Thank you week. for your interest. It's been fascinating talking with you. This is um, Whitney Stewart. Any last parting thoughts? Um, I that's so hard. We've talked about so much. I think the overarching theme of what we've talked about is exploring what you don't know, exploring other people's view of the world, yeah. exploring other countries, and. Yeah other ways of living with an open mind. Yeah, and and I I would add, I mean, I, I came here to, to New Orleans mostly for Jazz Fest, and yeah. I feel like that festival, more than anything, encourages that mm -hmm. exploring, just the cross-cultural exchange mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and just the, the vision of that festival and mm -hmm. a, a, of exploring the whole roots, all of the roots of this city. Of the city. I mean, what a rich, place very rich place and it speaks to me all the time yeah yeah, yeah. well thank you so much Whitney. I really thanks for your interest in talking <laughs> with you okay.